Dean Bible Ministries presents the Bible teaching ministry of Dr. Robert Dean, pastor of West Houston Bible Church. These and other Bible lessons are available from www.deanbible.org. Now let's listen to our lesson from God's Word, the Bible. Trust in the Lord with all your heart and lean not on your own understanding. In all your ways acknowledge Him and He will direct your paths. They that wait upon the Lord shall renew their strength. They shall mount up with wings as eagles. They shall run and not grow weary. They shall walk and not faint. Fear thou not, for I am with thee. Be not dismayed, for I am thy God. I will strengthen thee, yea, I will help thee, yea, I will uphold thee with the right hand of my righteousness. Be anxious for nothing, but in everything, by prayer and supplication, with thanksgiving, let your requests be made known unto God, and the peace of God, which surpasses all comprehension, shall defend your hearts and minds in Christ Jesus. Thou wilt keep him in perfect peace, whose mind is stayed on thee, because he trusteth in thee. For the grass withers and the flower fades, but the word of our God shall stand forever. Before we get started in our study this evening, let's have a few moments of silent prayer, give you the opportunity to admit any sins, known sins, to God the Father, so that you will be forgiven, cleansed of all unrighteousness, and prepared to study the word. Let's pray. Father, we thank you so much that we can gather together as a body of believers to freely study your word, that we still live in a nation where we have the freedom to teach the word, we have the freedom to study, we have the freedom to proclaim the gospel. And Father, we pray that you would continue to preserve those freedoms for us. We thank you for our nation, we thank you for the leadership that we have, we pray for those who are serving, that you would watch over them. We pray for wisdom among the military leaders, the upper levels of leadership, both civilian and military, that they might make wise decisions with regard to the national security of this nation. Father, we pray that as we study your word tonight that we might be able to set aside the distractions of life, that we might be able to have objectivity under the teaching ministry of God the Holy Spirit to see how these things apply in our own lives and that we might be ready to make them a part of our thinking that we may continue to grow and advance in our spiritual life. We pray this in Christ's name. Amen. We're in Genesis chapter 50. We've wrapped up the last part of Genesis chapter 49, which describes the death of Jacob. And Genesis chapter 50 begins with the mourning of his sons over his passing. Genesis chapter 50, verse 1 through 4, we read, Then Joseph fell on his father's face and wept over him and kissed him. And Joseph commanded his servants, the physicians, to embalm his father. So the physicians embalmed Israel. Forty days were required for him, for such are the days required for those who are embalmed, and the Egyptians mourned for him seventy days. And when the days of his mourning were past, Joseph spoke to the household of Pharaoh, saying, If now I have found favor in your eyes, please speak in the hearing of Pharaoh, uh, saying, and then it goes on from there. The main thing that we are focusing on the last couple of weeks and this week is on the 
biblical teaching on death and dying. And preparation for death was what we covered a couple of weeks ago, and we saw how Jacob, as Israel, prepared his family for his passing. He made sure that he had he bestowed the blessing, the double blessing, on uh, Manasseh, Manasseh, and Ephraim, the two sons of Joseph, and he passed on the blessing to the brothers in Genesis chapter 49, and we studied those uh, particular prophecies. But the point of application there is that as any good father, any good parent, any good adult, we should be prepared for those what we might just call the everyday or day-to-day facets of our own uh, death and dying. We need to have wills prepared. We need to have living wills prepared. We need to have a power of attorney, medical power of attorney, all of these different things that are required by law. If you can uh, and have the ability, I highly recommend that you take care of funeral arrangements. You can, most funeral homes have what they call a a pre-need service where you pay for everything up front, and that's also a wise investment because you get things paid for now, and one of the fastest inflationary aspects of the economy is in the whole area of funeral costs. They're They're just extraordinary. So take care of those things, and the more that is taken care of ahead of time, the easier it is on your family. Lay things out. Put things in writing. If you have valuable things or heirlooms or just something that's important to you, important in the history of the family, write down what it is. I can't tell you how many times my mother would tell me about this bowl or that dish that belonged to my grandmother or great-grandmother, whatever, and then she wasn't there anymore. And it wasn't written down. And, oh, what did she say about that? So write things down. Put things in writing. Uh, but you know, primarily those things related to what your wishes are at the time of death and related to the uh, distribution of your material possessions, your worldly goods at the time of death, so that doesn't become a point of contention, a problem. Nobody knows what to do. Lay everything out. That is just being uh, a very considerate, caring uh, person for your heirs, for those who are are left behind at the time of your departure. So that is a wise thing. This is the type of thing that Jacob was taken care of, and then he gave instructions to his sons, as we read in verses 29 to 33 in chapter 45, or excuse me, chapter 49. He gave specific instructions related to where he wanted to be buried, how he wanted his body disposed of, and that, as we studied, related to the Abrahamic covenant. So we also see a spiritual dimension that's passed on. And I've made suggestions that have a letter read at your memorial service or funeral, have uh, maybe you want to videotape a message. You have a captive audience. Nobody's going to get up and walk out on you. Uh, You can can say all kinds of things. Uh, You can have a lot of fun with it. We're being a little facetious, but it's something that's important and something where you get that last opportunity to make sure the gospel is clear to all of your friends, family, co-workers, anybody else that shows up at your at your funeral. Now, on the other side, besides the preparation for death, the facet of our own death being absent from the body face-to-face with the Lord, knowing that the Lord is going to take care of us. I've quoted from the Psalms, Precious 
in the sight of the Lord or the death of his godly ones, that he sends his angels to uh, carry us into heaven. All these things, we have dying grace where God comforts our soul in the midst of whatever the conditions are for our uh, final days or hours. But then we focus on the other side, that is, those who do not go to be with the Lord, those who are still here who are mourning our loss. And a lot of times as a pastor, I have seen and witnessed and been told by various people of different conflicts they, they go through at the time of death because on the one hand they know that this person that they love, perhaps it's a husband or wife, they've been married for 30, 40, 50, 60 years in some cases, they're so dependent on the other person, that person is always there, now suddenly they're not there. Uh, to talk to, and now that person's gone, or it's a child, or it's a close friend, or it is uh, just some other member of the family that is no longer present, and there is this deep sorrow, especially if it happens suddenly, if it's as a result of a long disease, or someone has been unhealthy for some time, then there's uh, another aspect that comes in, there's almost a sense of relief when that person finally goes to be with the Lord, because we know now they're really not suffering. So there's almost like, well, I ought to feel a lot more uh, sorrowful than I do uh, at that time. So we, we struggle with these different emotions at the time of death. But when it comes to grieving and mourning, a lot of Christians think that somehow that is, how can I have the joy of the Lord? How can I share the happiness of God? And at the same time, have this deep, profound sense of loss and mourning and sorrow that just seems to overcome me at times when I, I'm not even thinking about it. I go from one second, I'm happy, I'm with friends telling a joke or listening to a funny story, and then all of a sudden something hits me and I'm just overwhelmed with sadness and sorrow and emptiness. How do I handle that? Is, it that, is that being carnal? And no, it's not. That's the short answer. Because the scriptures clearly teach that we go through grieving and we go through mourning. So this evening I want to go through these passages related to grief and mourning. And just here at this opening passage in Genesis 50 verse 4, we see that Joseph weeps. And it's a form of this noun that shows up as mourning in verse 4. In verse 1, when he weeps over him, that's the Hebrew word bacha. And here we have a different form of it, bakit, a noun form that ends, indicates weeping. When the days of his mourning, or the days, literally the days of weeping, uh, were passed. So there's a clear recognition in the, the Egyptian society of setting aside a particular time to go through this uh, process of, of grieving. There's a number of different words. In fact, I discovered that there were somewhere around 20 or 25 different Hebrew words that are translated and some to have something to do with gr- grief or grieving or weeping or sorrow or sadness that are all used in this context. Most of them are only used in a grief or mourning sense maybe once or twice, so they really don't add a lot to our understanding of the concept. In this particular chapter that we're, we're getting into from, chap, from a, verse 1 to 14 in, um, in chapter 50, some form of this BKH 
word. That's the three consonants that form the root of baka. Some form of that occurs uh, n- several times in this section, about 14 times, which indicates that that's major theme here is the mourning and the grief that the sons are experiencing now that Jacob is gone. So this is very much a doctrine that is foundational to understanding this particular passage, and it illustrates some good things for us. So what I've done is I've just picked up some of the key words for grief and mourning. That'll be our first point to give us just an idea of how frequently these words are used in the Hebrew. So we'll start off with some of these key words. The first one is the word sapad, which is a safad, which is a uh, used 29 times in Hebrew in the verb form. There's a noun form that's also used, and it's translated in various places to wail, to lament. In fact, when we talk about lament psalms, that idea comes out of the use of this particular verb to describe those psalms. It's where you're expressing your grief, your sorrow your bereavement over particular problems, situations, heartaches in life. So sapadmi is translated to wail, to lament, to mourn, and it's used of mourning at the time of death. The participial form is used to refer to hired mourners who would come to the funeral and and uh, they would put on a show. And also it has one form of the word means to sing a lament, to write out a psalm. That would be sung as a lament for someone at death. This is what uh, Jeremiah did when Josh, when excuse me, when Jerusalem was overrun by the Babylonians in 586. He wrote a lament called Lamentations over the fall of Jerusalem. He was expressing his grief and his sorrow over what had happened uh, to his people. The, this verb is used of Abraham mourning for Sarah. In uh, Genesis chapter, uh, that'd be about chapter 23, it uh, describes this, uh, the sons mourning Jacob here. It describes the mourning of the nation Israel for, at the death of Samuel in 1 Samuel 25.1. It describes their mourning for the loss of Saul in 2 Samuel 1.12. Uh, Abner was ordered to grieve for Saul, to mourn for him by David, in 2 Samuel 3.31, also describes the grieving of Bathsheba at the death of Uriah in 2 Samuel 11.26. So it's a very common word. And as we look at this, we see how many people in the Scriptures, mature believers, are grieving over the loss of loved ones, even though in most of those cases they had a firm understanding of the doctrine of resurrection. Abraham did, yet he mourned for Sarah. Uh, Jacob did when he thought Joseph uh, was dead. Another word is the word uh, avel. It's translated mourning or sorrowing. It emphasizes more, whereas um, safad emphasizes the overt expression of that grief in terms of uh, weeping or sorrow or external mourning. Uh, avel emphasizes the internal dimension more, the deep, profound sadness and sorrow that accompanies the loss of a loved one. And this is the word that's used to describe uh, Jacob's sorrow uh, over the death of Joseph when he was told that Joseph was dead in Genesis 37. Of course, he wasn't, but he didn't know that. 
Uh, the people of Israel, uh, this word is also used to describe the sorrow, the sadness of the people of Israel when God rebukes them and disciplines them at two key places in their history. In Exodus 33, after the golden calf incident, when God uh, lowers the boom on Israel and tells them that uh, that they're a stubborn and rebellious and hard, uh, stiff-necked people, he says he would not travel in their midst. They would be out in front. And so it says in Exodus 33, 3 through 5, that they grieved over what God had said. There's this deep mourning over that. Also at Kadesh Barnea, after they're defeated, uh, after the, the, excuse me, after the uh, 12 spies go into the land and come back and say that, that, uh, 10 of the spies say, well, there's giants in the land and there's, the, the cities are all, uh, extremely well fortified and the people are numerous. We just can't defeat them. And only two said that, that they could if they trusted God. God then said, well, you're not going to trust me, so I won't give you the land. And so the people mourned. And in their grief, and this is the problem with grief, it is not the grieving and the sadness and the sorrow that is the problem. It is when you allow that to dominate your thinking and push you to make stupid decisions and sinful decisions and wrong decisions because that's what happened at Kadesh. They grieved and they decided, okay, we didn't trust God. He won't let us go in. We're going to show, show God. We're going to trust him. And then they tried to uh, invade the land and they were uh, massively defeated and suffered a tremendous uh, amount of, of loss of life because they we're not going in on God's timetable. God had changed the timetable. So you can't let the grief, the sorrow, the emotion dominate your thinking uh, when you go through a time of loss. We're also told that Samuel grieved over Saul. and David grieved over Absalom. Ezra mourned over the unfaithfulness of the returning exile. So this word is used not only of mourning the loss of someone and their death, but also the loss of blessing. It also pictures the loss of, uh, or just the sinfulness of the people. In Isaiah 53, verse 10, it's used in, uh, we have another word that's used. That we go beyond Avel to the word halah. We have this, this is a chapter dealing with the suffering of Messiah. And in Isaiah 53, 10, we read, Yet it pleased the Lord to bruise him. That is, a, it's a prophetic statement about Christ. It pleased the Lord to bruise him. He has put him to grief. When you make his soul an offering for sin, he shall see his seed, he shall prolong his days, and the pleasure of the Lord shall prosper in his hand. So it's talking about how God the Father is putting the Lord Jesus Christ, the second person of the Trinity, to grief at the cross. And the Hebrew word translated grief here is kalah, which indicates the weakness, the physical sickness that often accompanies sorrow. And we'll see, we'll go, before we're done tonight, we'll go to the passages in Matthew when Jesus is in the Garden of Gethsemane and he's under so much pressure in anticipation of the cross that he sorrows exceedingly. We'll look at those words. Those words are also in the grief uh, collection of words. He sorrows exceedingly so much so that he sweats blood. It's just forced out of his pores. So this is a prophecy of that here in Isaiah 53, verse 10. 
Then we have another word for grief in Lamentations, where we would expect it in Lamentations 3, 31 to 33. We have the principle, the Lord will not cast off forever. He's not going to discipline Israel forever, though he causes grief because of his discipline. Though he causes grief, yet he will show compassion according to the multitude of his mercies. For he does not afflict willingly nor grieve the children of men. And the word here for grief is yagah, both in verse 32 and in verse 33, which means to suffer, to afflict, to be pained, and to grieve. And it indicates the fact that grief is a is a real pain. It, it's, it, it's almost physical at times. If, if you have ever gone through any deep, profound grief, it can affect you physically uh, very much. It refer, so, Yagah refers to the emotion and the despair brought about by some act or condition. Here, it's Jerusalem's misfortunes and the death of so many. But the solution is always found in the grace provision of God. That's the focus of the word. That's what makes the grief of the believer so different, is because the believer's grief is going to be ameliorated by the grace of God. The grace of God provides a solution. So even though our focus is on loss and sorrow, that even at the time that we are experiencing that, we also know that God has a plan and that God is going to supply uh, sustenance for us no matter what those circumstances might be. The last word that I'm going to mention, oh, well, I've got one more passage here uh, to go through. We also have, It's also an illustration of the same verb, naga, in Psalm 31, 8 through 12. Psalm 31, 8 through 12. There the psalmist says, You've not shut me up into the hand of the enemy. You've set my feet in a wide place. Have mercy on me, O Lord, for I am in trouble. My eye wastes away with grief. This is the same word of being afflicted, of being grieved by his circumstances, by those who were hostile to him. And so the psalmist recognizes he's almost in a what we would call depression. He is physically affected by the emotions that he has related to his rejection and those who are opposed to him. He says, my eye wastes away with grief. It's a picture of his weeping. Yes, my soul and my body. Now, this is a believer who's a mature believer who has doctrine in his soul, yet nevertheless the circumstances affect him. And that's the thing that I really want to get across here tonight is that there's nothing wrong with your spiritual life if you face problems or heartaches or difficulties in life and you go through grief because that is part of our our human condition. And so David often uh, portrays this when he's going to the Lord in prayer. And that's the point that we need to recognize as believers, is we have to be honest about those emotions. That doesn't mean you wallow in them or you're caving into self-pity. That's not what, what David is doing, and that's, that's the problem we have. We, we feel the grief intensely, but then we have to decide how we're going to handle that. Are we going to let it just overpower us where we just cave into a lot of uh, self-absorbed self-pity and arrogance, or are we going to let that drive us to a greater dependence upon God? And that's what the psalmist is doing. Psalm 31.10, he says, My life is spent with grief, 
This is the word we just looked at, a different form of it, uh, meaning sorrow here, having that idea. My life is spent with grief, my years with sighing. My strength fails because of my iniquity, and my bones waste away. So he is uh, dealing with the fact that he has, it's, it's like a, uh, a psalm of confession here. He recognizes that some degree it's due to the result of his own uh, sinfulness. But he goes to the Lord with his grief, and so by the time he concludes the psalm, because the psalm itself focuses on the character of God, by verse 19 he's focusing on the attributes of God. Oh, how great is your goodness, which you have laid up for those who fear you, uh, which you have prepared for those who trust in you in the presence of the sons of men. And then by verse 21, Blessed be the Lord, for he has shown his marvelous kindness in a strong city. For I said in my haste, I am cut off from before your eyes. Nevertheless, you heard the voice of my supplication when I cried out to you. So we see how God turns the sorrow into praise as you focus on doctrine going through, uh, going through the process of grief. One last word, Hebrew word, is kaas which can is sometimes translated anger or provocation, vexation, and other times grief and sorrow. A lot of times you have other emotions are mixed in with grief. Grief is, can be very complex because you can be, if you're grieving over the loss of someone, depending on how your relationship has been, that grief can also be mixed with guilt. It can be mixed with anger. It can be mixed with bitterness. So it, it can be a very complex situation depending on uh, what the circumstances are. So these are just some of the words that are expressed in Hebrew. Then we get over into the Greek words. The core Greek word that has to do with sorrow and sadness is lupeo. That's the verb. Uh, the noun is lupe. Lupeo has the idea of grieving, to be afflicted with sorrow, to be sad, uh, to be sorrowful, it is a intensely emotional word. <clears throat> Lupe is the noun form. Sometimes it's translated regret, but it has that idea of being overcome with grief, and it's used that way in the passages I'm going to go through. Romans 9.1, Paul expresses his grief over the fact that his fellow Jews have rejected Christ as their Savior. And he is mourning for that. So grief and mourning doesn't just have, doesn't just apply to the loss of a loved one or loss of a friend, loss of life. It has to do with uh, sinfulness. It has to do with the fact that there are those who reject Christ. You can have grief or sorrow over the condition of your nation. You can have grief or sorrow over the condition of um, any number of things. You can have grief and sorrow over the loss of a job over the loss of a of a dream if you are if you own a house and that's destroyed in a storm destroyed in fire you can go through many of the same emotions associated with grief so here paul says i tell the truth in christ i'm not lying my conscience also bearing me witness in the holy spirit that i have great sorrow and that's that noun form lupe it doesn't have that idea of regret here it has the idea or remorse it has the idea of sorrow I have great sorrow and continual grief in my heart, for I could wish that I myself were accursed from Christ 
or my brethren, my countrymen, according to the flesh. So this idea of grief and sorrow is not necessarily something that makes you carnal, that you're not trusting God. Here Paul's trusting God, but at the same time he recognizes and there is a genuine sorrow and sadness about living in the cosmic system in a fallen world where people reject Christ. The word translated continual grief is the Greek word adune, which is variously translated as the idea of sorrow or torment, grief, pain, uh, distress of body or mind. So it can refer to deep emotional uh, distress over a particular uh, situation. Another word that is used in Greek is the word pentheo and the noun form penthos, and this has more of the idea of that external type of grief, uh, similar to the first Hebrew word that we saw, sapad. It's that external mourning, wailing, weeping, lamenting expression, the external expression of the inward uh, sadness. Then we have another word, uh, perilupas. Peri is a Greek preposition that intensifies uh, the lupos, the noun, uh, where we had lupe and lupeo. So perilupos deals with a profound or an intense sorrow or grief. And this is the word we'll see that's used to describe what Jesus Christ is going through in the Garden of Gethsemane. He's not just going through lupe or pente. He's going through perilupeo. It's an intense emotional Grief and sadness in his humanity, he is shows, which reveals that he is fully human. It's not sinful. And then the last word that's used a number of places for grief is sulupeo, which has the idea of being afflicted, grieving, or grieving together. Okay, that covers the basic words and gives us an idea of what the Bible is talking about, recognizing the legitimacy of sadness and sorrow and mourning at the time of death or even in looking at failures that are taking place within the cosmic system. Second point, grief and mourning are legitimate realities in a fallen world. It is totally legitimate and it is spiritual to express grief and to grieve and sorrow. Don't be, don't feel guilty. Don't act like, well, I'm not trusting God or I'm not applying doctrine because I've gone through this loss. You are going through a legitimate loss and God made you in such a way so that you would feel that pain. Why do you feel that pain? Because you're living in a fallen world. It is a reminder that should drive you to the grace of God that this world is not what it was designed to be. Sin and suffering and death and all of these things were not part of God's original plan. They are there because of Adam's sin and Adam's failure. And so every time we go through anything that causes us to grieve, it is a reminder that this isn't the way God intended it to be. We're living in a world that has this, because of sin and because of man's disobedience to God. So we reroute our thinking back to dependence upon the grace of God, dependence upon the throne of God, recognizing that he is the one who is going to take care of things, but we're not going to live in denial. You're not going to create 
some sort of neurotic fairy tale castle that everything's just fine and I'm happy and at the same time uh, you're, you're sorrowful in denying that. And that's how a, someone in human viewpoint has to handle sorrow and sadness and death is all they can do is create a, a totally fictitious world, a fantasy world, and live in denial. But as we'll see, we're not supposed to grieve like those who have no hope. You don't grieve like an unbeliever in denial of reality. And at the same time that Jesus is in the Garden of Gethsemane, where he is going through this intense suffering, he also has maximum happiness in his soul that never changed. He had maximum tranquility and stability because he wasn't sinning. And, and see, we, we're taught that, well, it's one or the other. If I'm trusting God, I'm going to be happy. If I'm not trusting God, I'm going to be sad. No, what we see here is that there can be a place for legitimate and profound sorrow and sadness, while at the same time, because we know God's in control and we know what his plan is, we have tranquility and contentment, which enables us to go through the sadness and the sorrow despite whatever pain it may cause. Spiritually mature believers are pictured in Scripture as grieving over the death of their loved ones. Uh, Genesis 23, verse 2, So Sarah died in Kiriath Arba, uh, that is Hebron, in the land of Canaan, and Abram came to mourn for Sarah and to weep for her. It is a very profound, picturesque uh, image of the, the, the profundity of his sorrow. Genesis thirty-seven, thirty-four. Jacob tore his clothes, put sackcloth on his waist, and mourned for his son many days. So these were not immature believers who didn't understand any doctrine or didn't have a doctrine of the resurrection. They had all that, but they recognized legitimate sorrow. Uh, we also have Deuteronomy thirty-four, eight. And the children of Israel wept for Moses in the plains of Moab for thirty days after he died. So then the days of weeping and mourning for Moses ended. Now the third point, which I originally had as point two, but I didn't get that changed in the slide. Different people grieve, and the numbering's going to be off on the rest of this, so just, you know, adjust. Be flexible. Different people grieve in different ways. Not everybody's the same. And I make this point because back in the 1970s, somebody came along, a lady came along by the name of uh, Elizabeth Kubler-Ross, who wrote a book called On Death and Dying, which became almost a Bible for people on the whole subject of grief. I remember when I was a student at Dallas Seminary taking one of my least favorite courses, uh, Pastoral Psychology and Counseling with uh, Frank Minrith and Paul Meyer, and that was presented, the five stages of grief was presented as if that had as much reliability and dependability and truthfulness as John 3.16. And this is standard. And if you're in the military or if you are in any kind of medical profession or if you're probably even if you're a teacher, you get exposed to this and grief counseling. How many times in the last uh, five or six years from the events at Columbine to Katrina to this tornado that went through Greenberg, Kansas this last, uh, this last spring, uh, we ex- realize that anytime anything happens at a school or anything happens to any large group of people, the first people that are pushed in are the grief counselors. 
And this is a major role now if young men who want to go into, want to serve the Lord and go into the military as a chaplain, they are just force-fed all kinds of human viewpoint psychobabble because that's how they have to handle all this stuff. And, and one of the things is this whole myth about grief counseling. And so uh, Kubler-Ross came up with this idea that, that people have to go through five stages of grief in order to work, be healthy, emotionally healthy, and psychologically sound. And there are a number of flaws to her study. The first is it was based on a limited test case. I think she had fewer than 100 people. It was based on her personal observation. It was based on studies of people who didn't have any doctrine whatsoever. And she didn't have any doctrine whatsoever. So she's just observing. It's Once again, we see the whole problem with empirical data. It, pre- it, it operates on certain presuppositions, and it doesn't take into account all of the facts. Certainly there is some empirical validity. There are times when people go through grief that they do get angry. They have times of depression. They bargain with God. They get um, they go through stages of denial, whatever it is. These kinds of things might be there, but that's not what she said. What she said was everybody goes through all five stages, and you have to go through them in the right order, and you have to spend a certain amount of time in each stage, or you are going to have problems later on in life. And this is just so much uh, psychobabble, and it's the birth of the whole grief therapy thing. Now, I ran across this particular uh, quote that I thought was uh, enlightening. This is from an excerpt from the Psychotherapy Networker, Volume 28, Number 3, pages 21 and 22. It was part of a 182-page report discussing uh, Dr. Ginevro's work uh, related to the, uh, and it's put out by the Center for Advancement for Health, and is available at their website, which is down there at the bottom of the screen. To quote that work, Now, an examination of about 500 studies on grief and bereavement led by social worker Janice Ginevro concludes that there is no one-size-fits-all model for grieving, that grief therapy doesn't shorten grieving, and that it doesn't significantly alleviate the intensity or side effects of grief. In other words, all this stuff about five stages of grieving that everybody built all grief therapy on that Kubler-Ross came out with is just a bunch of garbage, to put it very mildly. And yet how many people in our culture, how many Christians have just bought into this and uh, and, and made it a part of our thinking? It is almost uh, accepted uh, inadvertently by everybody in our culture that you have to go through these stages. Oh, well, you'll go through a denial. Are you out of the denial stage yet? Oh, well, no. Now you're going to be in the anger stage. Okay, well, we'll let you be angry for a little while. Now, are you bargaining? Yet? See, there may be elements of this, and there may not. That's We have sin natures, and they're going to crop up. We have, we're fallible. We have problems. But the reality is that if we are a believer in the Lord Jesus Christ, then you understand, number one, that it's legitimate, you're going to be sorrowful, and you're going to be sad, and you're going to mourn the loss of someone. But at the same time, there is excitement and enthusiasm 
and you know that that person is face to face with the Lord. So, so they're both present at the same time, and you don't have to sit back and say, "Well, is there something wrong with me because I'm both sad and happy?" And I, I don't know. No, you can relax. This is healthy. This is biblical. You can face the realities of living in a fallen world with objectivity and stability, even when your emotions are very unstable because of the circumstances you're going through. They're still surrounded by an environment of stability. Okay, so that was the the first point had to do with the, the words for grieving. The second point was that grief and mourning are legitimate realities in a fallen world. The third point should be that different people grieve in different ways, that psychoanalysis comes up with its own uh, concept. There's always alternative ways to approaching grieving other than a biblical way. So now we come to fourth point which has to do with the fact that we may mourn for many, many reasons. Grieving may come for a number of different reasons. It may be the result of death, the loss of a loved one, the loss of a friend. It can be from the loss of a job, loss of income, loss of possessions, uh, loss of a cherished dream, loss of material possessions, loss of health. Uh, you can go get extremely bad news that just leaves you uh, feeling somewhat grieved. Uh, excuse me. Scripturally, we see that there are um, there are prophets who grieve over the sinful condition of people. Parents may grieve over rebellious children, or children who make bad decisions, or continue to make bad decisions, or refuse to uh, get right with the Lord. So there are a lot of different reasons that people have for grieving. Exodus 33, 4, the people heard the bad news that God was not going to uh, walk in their midst, and they mourned, and no one put on their ornaments. They, they didn't dress up. They, didn't, they, they reacted to it. Numbers 14, 39, that's the passage related to their response of Kadesh Bornea. The people mourned because God wasn't going to let them into the land. And Ezra 10.6, Ezra mourns over the sinfulness and the guilt of the people. In 2 Corinthians 12.21, Paul expected believers to mourn over sin in their life. So you look at your life and you realize, I'm pretty, pretty, you know, I've got a pretty consistent track record of a particular sin and I just haven't dealt with it for 40 years. There ought to be mourning as a result of that over a failure to apply doctrine. Uh, Samuel mourned over Saul's disobedience and the divine discipline on Saul. Not just his death, but he mourned over his disobedience in 1 Samuel 16.1. Jonathan grieved over uh, the way his father treated David. Uh, parents will grieve over a foolish son in Proverbs 10.1 and Proverbs 17.25. Uh, and sometimes we will grieve and be highly anxious over an approaching test or distress or challenge that we see. This is what uh, happened with the Lord at the Garden of Gethsemane, Matthew twenty-six thirty-seven. He took with him Peter and the two sons of Je- Zebedee, that would be J- James and John, and he began to be sorrowful and deeply distressed. Then he said to them, My soul is exceedingly sorrowful, even to death. 
Stay here and watch with me. So this is the Lord expressing his own condition. It's not just somebody else saying it. He began to be sorrowful. This is lupe, expressing the fact he's overcome with sorrow, sadness, grief, and anticipation of the cross. Then on top of that, the text says he is ademoneo. He is on the verge of fainting. He is physically affected by this sorrow, what, what he, the pain that he's going to go through on the cross, he, to the point that he is overwhelmed with this sorrow and sadness. And then he describes it himself with the noun perilupos, and this is the idea, peri means to be around, so it's the idea of being totally overwhelmed or surrounded with grief, it's a picturesque word for being severely grieved, sorrowful, distressed over the situation, yet he's not sinning. See, somehow we get this idea that if we get real emotional, now there's different ways of being real emotional. You can be angry, you can be sad, you can be weepy, there's a lot of things, but we get the idea that if we really have these intense emotions, that somehow that's the sin. But here we see the Lord Jesus Christ who never sinned, is in the garden, and he is feeling the intensity of these emotions, as intense as any emotion that you or I feel. And yet he doesn't sin. He doesn't allow those emotions to push him into wrong decisions. And that's something that believers can learn a lot from, because a lot of times we make wrong decisions because it doesn't feel good to stay here in this emotional state of whatever it may be, anger, grief, sorrow, anxiety, whatever it might be, I'm not going to sit here. So what I do is I do something that's, that's sinful to solve the emotional state. And the Lord says, he prays, he goes to the Lord, he prays, Lord, if this be your will, let this cup pass from me. And God's not going to take the test away from him. And he applies doctrine in the situation, which then stabilizes his emotions. Uh, another passage is in Mark chapter uh, 3, verse 5. Uh, this is, Jesus looks, uh, no, it's not, uh, yeah, when Jesus looked around them with anger, being grieved by the hardness of his heart, here he expresses both anger at their, it's a righteous uh, indignation, and he is grieved because of the, the hardness of their heart, because of their negative volition. Again, we see this in the humanity of the Lord Jesus Christ, but it's not sin because it doesn't move him in any decision to create. There's no mental attitude sin, and there's no physical or overt sin. But the emotions are present because that's part of his his humanity. That was point four, point five. There's legitimacy in mourning. It's interesting. One of the ironic things is in 2 Samuel 12, after Bathsheba has given birth to the baby that was a product of her adultery with David, and God has announced that this baby is going to die, David mourns and grieves and fasts for the child and prays continually for his son until the son dies. When the son dies, he quits grieving. It's an interesting twist in the order there. He grieves and mourns until the child dies, but once he 
uh, dies, he reverses and he puts on his, cleans up, takes a shower, gets dressed, and he relaxes in the plan of God. When Absalom died, we're told that David mourned exceedingly over Absalom. There is deep, profound grief there. David is a mature believer. We read him mourning, using these terms for mourning and grief many times in the Psalms. But what we don't see is this plunge into self-absorption and self-pity. The fact that we have these emotions is used to drive the mature believer to trust God and to apply doctrine, not to just have it throw a pity party. Sixth point. Several times the psalmist expresses the intensity of his grief over rejection and rebellion and death. And we see a couple of key passages. One I mentioned already, Psalm 6-7, my eye wastes away because of grief, or the, the idiom I mentioned earlier, my eye wastes away because of grief. This is weeping. It grows old because of all of my enemies. Uh, Psalm 31, 9 and 10, have mercy on me, O Lord, for, for I am in trouble. My eye wastes away with grief. Yes, my soul and my body, for my life is spent with grief. My years were sighing, my strength faileth because of my iniquity, and my bones are consumed. We are admonished in the scripture, for example, in Romans twelve fifteen, that we are to weep with those who weep. That is part of our genuine compassion for those who are going through sadness and sorrow. And Second Corinthians one three through four tells us that one reason that some of us go through certain amount of testing and adversity in life is so that we can learn how God comforts us and then we can in turn comfort others with that same comfort. Paul says in 2 Corinthians 1, 3, and 4, Blessed be God, even the Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Father of mercies, and the God of all comfort, who comforteth us in all our tribulation or all our adversity. That purpose clause that we may be able to comfort them which are in trouble by the comfort wherewith we ourselves are comforted of God. One reason, the only reason you may go through certain types of adversity in life may be so that you can learn how to apply doctrine in that kind of a situation so that 5, 10, 15, 20 years down the road, somebody else is going to go through that same crisis and you're going to be the person who's there to help them apply doctrine, to encourage them and strengthen them as they go through that crisis. So when we have the opportunities to learn the lessons, don't get so caught up in some little time bubble that it's all about right now because God is preparing you for some future circumstance or future uh, situation. As believers, we know that we don't stay in the same situation forever, that the grief, the sorrow is going to pass and there is going to be, uh, there's going to be joy. Psalm 30 verse 11. You have turned my, my mourning into dancing. You have put off my sackcloth and clothed me with gla- gladness. Because we have the certainty of God's plan and His revelation, we know that while right now we may be sad and overwhelmed with the grief and the loss, Tomorrow or next week or next month, God is going to turn that sorrow into gladness and we will have the full joy that we had before. Uh, 1 Thessalonians 4.13 is the key passage at times of grief. 
there Paul says, I do not want you to be ignorant, brethren, concerning those who have fallen asleep, which is just a euphemism for the death of a believer, the physical death of a believer, lest you sorrow as others who have no hope. And here we have the verb lupeo. See, as a believer, we are not to sorrow or to grieve as those who have no hope. It doesn't say you're not going to grieve. It says you're not going to grieve like those who have no hope. So let's stop a minute and think about how do unbelievers grieve. Well, unbelievers grieve by going into deep and lasting depression. And they just stay there. And they don't seem to ever come out of it. 10, 15, 20. I've seen believers like that. 20 years down the road, they're just as sorrowful and just as depressed as, the were, as they were the day their child died because they never learned to really trust God. And once you get into this death test where there's a death of a loved one around you, it's too late to learn the doctrine and start applying it because you have to have your soul prepared ahead of time. Once you get into the test, it's too late to go home and cram. You have to pass it with what you have. And if you don't have your soul prepared when you hit the death test, then uh, it's going to take much longer for you to go through the, the whole grief process, and you may not. You may just end up being a spiritual wreck for decades, and I've seen that happen too. People who just, and they're angry with God, and they're mad at God, and they blame God for everything because they never understood the truth, and it was too late to figure it all out once they got into the test. Hopelessness. Notice the contrast in the verse. Like those who have no hope. We as believers have hope. We have a confident expectation. We know with certainty that when a believer dies, they're face-to-face with the Lord. But others, unbelievers don't have that certainty. They have to convince themselves of something, or they just have to live in a world where, okay, they just don't exist anymore. And there is a profound sadness and sorrow all their lives at the loss of a loved one because they can't, they, they can't explain it. They don't know what's going on. There's just an emptiness there that is uh, very bleak. And so the only way they can handle it is to construct a completely false view of life and they go into some form of denial just so they are able to somehow cope with what goes on. But believers don't need coping strategies. We have uh, the problem-solving devices so that we can handle every problem and live above our circumstances and not under our circumstances. Or unbelievers have an empty faith, just sort of, well, we'll all be in heaven. We'll see him again. How do you know that? Oh, well, don't ask them that question because that will just rattle their whole cage. Um, or they just have some sort of stoic pushing on, stiff upper lip, we're going to make it, and, and uh, this is just the way things are, and we will uh, we'll just somehow manage to find some happiness even in the midst of death. Often when you operate on carnality and the sin nature, grief gets complicated by anger, by regrets, by fear, by uh, bitterness, by all kinds of other mental attitude sins, and they can end up making a person uh, miserable for decades. In contrast, how should a believer sorrow? We sorrow, but like not like others who have no hope. So how should a believer grieve? 
Well, first of all, you're honestly recognizing the fact that you are grieving, that this hurts, that you've lost a loved one, that there is genuine sadness and sorrow there. You don't have to hide it like an, like an unbeliever. You can honestly face the fact that things aren't what they ought to be. This is miserable. It's rotten living in the devil's world, living in a cosmic system under the penalty of sin. Now, having said, and, and that's why people die, and that's why they're sick, and that's why they go through that. So there's an honesty with reality. We don't have to look to denial or some other kind of, of coping mechanism. Sometimes, if you're going through that grieving process, and sometimes it'll just, just hit you in waves as you are grieving over something. You don't even know. You're out with friends or whatever. Just get away. Have privacy uh, until you can regain your composure uh, focusing on doctrine. Second suggestion, never make an issue out of your loss. Don't focus on the loss. That's the path to self-absorption. That is the path to just uh, to self-pity. Don't focus on what I lost because you never had a right to it to begin with in God's world. Shift the focus to God's plan. That's the process you see every time you read the Psalms. You see this shifting focus to the, to the character of God. Work your way through the attributes of God, and that will reorient your focus not to your loss but to God's plan. Third suggestion is use the opportunities of sorrow and intense emotion to relax and pray about these these things. It's not wrong to have certain feelings. What's wrong is to do the wrong thing with those feelings. You will feel lonely. You will feel isolated. You will miss the person profoundly at times. Well, you go to the Lord in prayer because he is the one who comforts, the psalmist says, he comforts the widows and the orphans. Read the Psalms, the fourth suggestion. Read the Psalms to find similar situations with David and others who faced deep emotional trauma but did not let it push them into carnality, bitterness, anger toward God, and resentment and to let it destroy their spiritual life and recognize the promises that they relied on at those particular times. Remember, God has a plan, and it's a perfect plan, but within that plan he allowed for sin, for volition, and there is sorrow, and there's heartache, and it's real and it's genuine in this life. But the reality is that that is totally overcome by the perfect happiness and stability and peace that God gives us based on doctrine. It's the truth of God's word that gives us the strength to make it through those times, gives us stability in the midst of instability, but it depends on your volition and what you're going to choose to focus on when you're going through those difficult times. Let's bow our heads and close in prayer. Father, we thank you for this opportunity to study these things. We pray that you would help us to internalize these doctrines, make them a part of our thinking, recognize that that um, we need to be prepared in our own souls for those times when we too will face the loss of a loved one, the loss of a friend, uh, loss of uh, numerous other things in life, but that the solution is not to focus on the loss, but to focus on your plan, and your character. Father, we thank you that we have the sure truth of your word 
that we can rely on knowing that you have given us everything we need related to life and godliness and that by trusting in you, we can have, even in the midst of sorrow and sadness, a perfect peace and calm and happiness. We pray this in Christ's name. Amen.